You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You could see off in the horizon the flares going off. You could hear the artillery. And, you know, we were, you know, eating hamburgers and drinking cold beer. And we knew that, you know, 10 miles out in that direction, people were getting killed. This is Cold War Conversations. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The withdrawal of American and all other foreign forces from Vietnam within a period of 60 days. And I'm here to host this final program from the German Democratic Republic for you. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. In this episode, we talk with Colonel Keith Nightingale, who served in the U.S. military from 1965 to 1993. He completed two tours of Vietnam, the first as a senior advisor to a Vietnamese ranger unit, and the second as a rifle company commander in the 101st Airborne. Keith used the experience of his first tour to write Just Another Day in Vietnam, which gives a vivid first-hand account of a jungle operation with the South Vietnamese Rangers against the Viet Cong. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Co-host James conducts our chat, and I am delighted to welcome Keith Nightingale to our Cold War Conversation. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I went to what we call reserve officers training program uh, and was commissioned in the regular army on the 6th of June, uh, 1965. Uh, At that time, Vietnam was just warming up, but it was clear anybody in the army was going to go there. So I decided I wanted to go with the best we had. So I opted for both airborne and ranger school, uh, went to both and then had a stint in the 82nd Airborne before I deployed. Uh, I received orders to go to Vietnam as an advisor uh, to a Vietnamese Ranger Battalion, uh, and I showed up uh, in late April of 1967. Why were you sent to Vietnam? Why 
were you told at that time that the war in Vietnam was happening? Well, uh, in retrospect, we all sort of drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, you may remember that at that point, the domino theory was a uh, major strategic uh, view from the Western worlds. If one of these Asian countries uh, was taken over by the communists, the rest would soon follow. The actual real pressure, uh, beginning with uh, JFK, was in Laos. Uh, and then Vietnam was kind of an ancillary uh, when we basically replaced the French in 1954 with the peace accord. Uh, we became the sponsor of what, what was South Vietnam. Uh, and, you know, we provided advisors and equipment and training and all that. And so this was just sort of a progression when the uh, VC and the uh, North Vietnamese began incursions uh, into the South. When you arrive in 1967 uh, as an advisor, what is the state of the war at that stage? Well, you have to understand, as a first lieutenant, never been in combat before, it was all both a great mystery and quite exotic. Uh, you know, to go from Southern California to, say, Saigon uh, with all that exotica was, uh, you know, quite uh, a change. And I didn't know anything about the country, really, other than what I had read. Uh it was very hot, very humid. Uh, it was a horrible flight going into Saigon. It was over 24 hours, uh, and you didn't get any sleep, and they didn't have any real service. So you arrived. You were already somewhat whacked. Uh, and then the first thing I remember getting off the plane was the blinding sunlight, the heat and the humidity, and the kind of smell of rotting, burning garbage. You paint a very vivid, a very vivid image. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's what it was. You don't know what you're getting into. Uh, we were processed, uh, given our fatigues and boots, no weapons, uh, basic what we call TA-50, which is the wed gear and all your kit. Uh, and uh, had three days of paperwork processing and all that. And as an officer, I was, uh, assigned a room in what was the Rex hotel. And on top of it, it had a, the roof was a restaurant and a bar out in the open. And, you know, I sat there with the other, uh, troops that I was with, you could see off in the horizon, the flares going off, you could hear the artillery. And, you know, we were, you know, eating hamburgers and drinking cold beer. And we knew that, uh, you know, 10 miles out in that direction, people were getting killed. Uh, so it was somewhat of an exotic experience mentally at that point. Uh, I was then assigned to my unit, which was in Swan Lock which is about 60 miles uh, north and east of Saigon. Uh, austere area, uh, massive French rubber plantations, 
uh, and quite a bit of dense jungle coming right up to the town. Uh, the ranger unit that I joined, the 52nd Rangers, uh, were on a hill just to the south of town in very uh, austere quarters. I mean, in the case of the, our advisory team, we were in an old canvas tent that had more holes in it than not. Uh, dirt, there was just, you know, no amenities at all. And that was my first introduction to the war uh, at that point. And, you know, everything was kind of sensory overload in terms of absorbing things and figuring out what I was supposed to be doing. What did the Rangers think of your arrival? I mean, you're, you've never seen combat, and this unit presumably has seen quite a lot of combat. Uh, yes. Uh, the 52nd uh, was highly decorated. It had been awarded an American Presidential Unit Citation for an action about a month previous. Uh, I have to, you know, kind of define the term of advisor. Uh, it, you know, the impression is, well, you're advising the Vietnamese on how to fight. Uh, that's totally erroneous. Uh, we didn't advise them on a fight at all. They knew much better than we did how to manage it. What we did is we brought all the American assets in the tactical air, the artillery, the gunships, the helicopters, all of the kind of basic technology uh, that the American army had is what the advisor's job was, was to bring it to the Vietnamese in a coherent fashion. So we would meet with our counterparts. Uh, I was the junior deputy advisor. Uh, the executive officer was my counterpart. Uh, the senior advisor, uh, Captain Shine, uh, was the advisor to Major Hep, the battalion commander. And our advising basically was figuring out what the maneuver plan was for the Vietnamese. And then we templated on top of that the American technology. Uh, as an untrained task, our primary job was uh, what, what we call in, in the U.S. forward observers. We adjusted the artillery. We called in and adjusted the tactical airstrikes. We called in and managed the helicopter gunships. Uh, so we were more, call it artillery uh, focused then grunt infantry focused. What were these ranger units like? How do they compare to the U.S. Army and the more regular South Vietnamese Army? Well, at, the mo at that particular time, I didn't know. I had no reference points. Uh, it was quickly apparent they definitely knew their job. Uh, the ranger battalion uh, and... All, most all of the Ranger battalions were composed with what you might call the dregs of Vietnamese society. The people that could not dodge the draft, could not get out of the war, did not have the money uh, to get a cushy assignment. Uh, these were uh, predominantly Mountain Hill Tribe personnel, Nungs, Chams, 
uh, and sort of the bottom rung of Vietnamese society. But they were extraordinary combat soldiers. Uh, they knew they were in that battalion for their life. Uh, there was not going to be any rotation home like there was with us. Uh, when they joined the battalion, they were essentially there for life, however long that would be. Uh, they were seriously undergunned at the time that uh, I arrived. Uh, they were fighting predominantly with our World War II cast-offs, the M1 rifle, the 1917 machine gun, uh, you know, they had nowhere near the firepower that our opposition VC had with the AK-47s at all. Uh, they did have two M60 machine guns, new, that was given to them by the 11th Cav uh, as a result of a ambush that they uh, cleared out, and which is why they won the presidential unit citation. They rescued an entire squadron of the 11th Cav, and the regimental commander came in and gave them two brand new machine guns, which, of course, they loved. Uh, midway through my tour, we were issued for the first time the U.S. weaponry, the M16s and the M60s, and it made a huge difference in terms of their confidence, the troops' confidence, but it made no difference in terms of how they conducted themselves. Uh, they had a very karmic attitude. You know, we're in here, we're going to die, don't worry about it, whatever happens, happens. Uh, and after the battle that uh, I describe in my book, uh, I took on that kind of philosophy and it was immensely helpful. You just quit worrying about stuff and just did your job. Seems very elemental, uh, but it's, uh, it's not that easy to achieve. The U.S. units at the time, to answer your question, that I was associated with, the 1st Division, the 173rd Airborne, the 25th Infantry, the 11th Cav, they were superb professional units from top to bottom. Uh, they had come in from the States. They were virtually all volunteers, very solid NCO and officer corps, and the soldiers wanted to be there. Uh, it was dramatically different on my second tour for obvious reasons. What was it like when you finally move into the field and you know that you're going to face combat for the first time in an environment, a physical environment that is very different to certainly uh, the U.S., how did you feel? Um, I don't think you really feel anything. You're just incredibly curious. Uh, our The very first uh, operation I went on uh, was in a place called the Rungsat Zone, which is a swamping mangrove area. Uh, south of Saigon, and we were all in these little wooden boats, and they would uh, move us around in various parts and pieces to this incredible maze of ground, because that's what the VC used for their uh, hidden transport and caches and communications. So we were out there to disrupt it. 
well, I had no idea what we're doing. And I'm just in a boat with 20 other people following along. Uh, and, you know, we get off on the boat, we clear through the jungly, uh, swampy area, uh, nothing much here. So we get on the boat and go back to the next location and so on and so forth. Well, suddenly we had a lot of action, wham, bam, boom. And, you know, I, my eyes are open. What's going on here? And I'm, I run forward, you know, curiosity kills the cat. I, I ran forward to see what was going on because it was very close terrain. You couldn't see more than about 20 meters. And, you know, I saw these three rangers down on the ground pumping rounds, uh, into the bush. Uh, I brought up my weapon and, you know, added to the fire. And all of a sudden this guy came running out behind the bush and over a hill. And I just made a snapshot, bam, uh, pure deer hunter instinct, if you would. Uh, and, you know, we move forward to clear the ground. And on the other side of the hill, there was this body. And, you know, the rangers pointed it out to me. Uh, and so I went down the first time I'd ever fired my weapon in combat and the first dead VC I'd ever seen. Uh, and I have to tell you, I just was curious. There was zero emotion associated with it. It was just like I was hunting deer. Uh, I know that's kind of hard, but that's just how mentally and emotionally I think a soldier has to deal with this sort of stuff. So it's like a coping mechanism in a way, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. If you actually thought about it, it'd drive you crazy. You know, that's why the, you know, PTSD and the suicide uh, stats go up. Let's talk about your book, because uh, as you were saying um, earlier, before we um, before we had this conversation, that I have to curse you for your book because it kept me awake uh, to the early (laughs) hours on a number of occasions. But it is a fantastic book. Uh, Just another day in Vietnam. And uh, Cold War Conversations has some copies to give away, uh, details on that to follow. But uh, Keith, tell us, what prompted you to write the book? Um, I never went into, uh, call it the writing, with a, I never had a disciplined picture that I'm going to write a book now. Uh, Wasn't that way at all. Uh, I had taken notes of particular impressions or issues in a little notebook I had throughout my tour. And, you know, I just, you know, I would see something, a firefly, a lizard, uh, a particular action, a personality, uh, the effect of the jungle on people and things, uh, you know, whatever my kind of snapshot impressions were. And I just wrote it down without any discipline or organization. Uh, And then I came back uh, and was assigned to an ROTC assignment as a teacher between my Vietnam tours. And one weekend it just hit me, wham, I got to write this down. I mean, I saw the notebook and that's what triggered it. And uh, I was, of course, busy uh, Monday through Friday with classes and all that. So I would just come home uh, on the weekend and as kind of a cathartic action, I just write. 
uh, and I, uh, the book itself has almost no editing and it had no changing structure. What you see in the book is exactly what I was thinking at the moment I wrote it. Uh, didn't help me much with my wife and child who is, you know, both anxious to know me over the weekend. Uh, but it was something I really, I was really truly compelled to do, you know, whatever was inside me just kind of burst out like a fire hose, uh, on that. And, you know, in terms of the actual content, uh, you know, I would just, I would see a trigger note like rubber plantation and I would just close my eyes and I would see it. And then that's what I would write. Uh, the same as the, you know, the airstrike that would go in, I could just close my eyes and it was just like a movie film in front of me. And that's what I would just write. So, uh, what you read is what I saw. And that was basically it. It took me two weekends. Uh, and as I said, I did very little uh, in the way of editing. And when I gave it to, uh, the publisher, they looked at it and said, well, it's basically print ready and they made very little changes. So, you know, what you get is the end of my literary fire hose, if you would. One thing I found very interesting about the book is that it's not a unit history. It's not uh, a one-sided view of a particular action or campaign it does paint the story of both what the Rangers were thinking and the South Vietnamese forces were thinking and the North Vietnamese forces and the VC were thinking. How were you able to get both sides of the story and know that they were based on fact and not supposition? Well, uh, as we say, as I said in the introduction, this is basically a hybrid. Uh, it's a combination of hard facts and then conjecture or what I would call factoids uh, based on conversations with uh, a number of people. And this is kind of the unique thing about the book. Uh, I made a conscious decision that uh, I would write the book in the third person so that it was not a uh, you know, wham, bam, Vietnam book about, you know, how wonderful I was. It was much larger. But in order to paint that picture, I had to take on sort of a third person. Uh, and that was the vehicle I used to describe the other side, if you would. Uh, the unique thing about this is that as a result of our action and basic destruction, uh, we had a number of prisoners, rangers, taken prisoner by the VC. Uh, and they were released back to us, eight of them were, in December. The action took place in June. The prisoners were released back to us as a, quote, humanitarian gesture, unquote. Uh, in December, and the, I was then the senior advisor, and the battalion commander, Major Hep, who was basically the star of the whole thing, uh, interviewed them with me, 
debrief them. You know, where were you? What what happened to you? Blah, blah, blah. Well, he made a he was very suspicious of them that he he felt they were essentially flipped VC. So he was quite intense in his interrogation and pointed and he uh, his his system was that he would interview each one independently and keep each one separated from the other eight after the interview. Well, what came out was very consistent with all eight people. They said that uh, they were told by the VC leadership in their POW camp, which was just about a couple kilometers from the battle site. This thing was all a planned ambush uh, at the highest level, and that the POW camp was actually co-located with what was called Cosvin Headquarters, Central Office of South Vietnam. In other words, the tactical field manager of the VCNVA, uh, General Winchi Tan. And two of the prisoners said that they personally talked to Tan, and he came out, wandered around the cages, and just talked to them. Uh, as did some other leaders, you know, up and down the VCNVA chain, and they came all, but they all came back with the same story. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, this was a brand new strategy by Tan to destroy elite Vietnamese units, to destroy the Vietnamese morale, if you would, and reduce the effective forces that the South had, understanding that the elite were the Rangers, the Airborne, and the Marines. Uh, everybody else was of so-so quality, with few exceptions. So they targeted a Ranger battalion. Uh, and they knew that because of the situation where, the, where we were, that the Rangers would be tasked for the job. And they picked a place uh, beyond U normal U.S., uh, support capability, read artillery. Uh, and they made a, they developed a whole deception story, uh, as I indicate with Mr. Who, uh, who said, Hey, we have a company size base camp. I've just escaped from, and you know, it's up here and he showed it on the map and he had a pretty good understanding of reading maps. Uh, and, of course, it ended up being a regiment plus uh, in that company size base camp. And uh, the whole point of the operation was to destroy the Ranger Battalion uh, and then go on to other ones. Uh, and the prisoners talked about uh, how the uh, VC told them about the ambush of the CAV. Uh, coming to rescue us to the south. They knew that there was only one location 
where the cab could cross this stream. Uh, and they totally prepared it uh, for the ambush, which was successful, uh, stopping them. Uh, and then there was a B-52 strike uh, against the prisoner, the POW camp. Uh, and I described that at some length because that was obviously a, a major impression on the prisoners because of their uh, status as POWs, they were well off to the side of the camp and therefore were essentially unfazed by the attack, even though the main group was completely wiped out and reportedly Tan was also killed there. Uh, and they talked about having to go in this long trek back into Laos with Tan's body and then there they were met by a Alouette helicopter, which picked up his body and flew it back to uh, Hanoi. Uh, if you look at the history, you'll see that uh, the, the NVA said that Tan died of a heart attack uh, in Hanoi. Uh, and it, the date is coincidental with our action, so we gave it a degree of credibility. Uh, is it all true? Don't know. Do I believe it to be true? Absolutely. Uh, there were just too many parts that worked uh, for me not to believe that, you know, they, they were designing a clock, if you were. There is one bit in the book um, which I read twice which is where the ranger battalion has made its first foray it's been pushed back by the vc it's then been surrounded with a very small elliptical perimeter the armored cav have come in and got stuck in the river in a in a planned trap by the vietnamese north vietnamese sappers and then you start to wonder at this point if it is not hopeless for the South Vietnamese Rangers and indeed yourself as the third party uh, sort of narrator. I mean, you play a very small part in the book. What did it feel like for you at that moment when it seems that all hope is lost other than a spotter pilot above you in a, in a small aircraft? Well, um, actually, you kind of put your mind in neutral and you just deal with that very small microcosm in front of your rifle sight. Uh, my partner, Sergeant Swires, and I uh, were engaging enemy all night, uh, and it became a very kind of rote routine. You'd see the shadow come at you, and you'd shoot him, and you wouldn't see the shadow anymore. Uh, but we knew that you know, just by the volume of fire that was going on, uh, you know, that we were in, uh, we were in, in trouble. Uh, the, uh, I had communication with the, uh, FAC up on, up above the L-19, uh, spotter plane. And so I could monitor what was going on with Captain Shine, who was about a hundred yards away from me on, on my left. Uh, as well as what the spotter plane was saying about what was going on in the rest of the world to help us out. We heard all of the uh, 
fire with the cab down south and we knew the cab was coming to get us. And then, you know, they, we got the report, Hey, you know, they've been ambushed and they can't make it. You know, you're basically on your own. Uh, <clears throat> at that point, as you indicate, we were in a compressed perimeter. Uh, we had taken about three quarters of the base camp, uh, with the initial assault. And then they just ran constant human wave attacks against us. And we were pushed back and back and back to where we were in the, actually the last position uh, in the base camp. Uh, and at that point, uh, Major Hep called us in and he said, you know, this is desperate. We're going to have to do something or we're going to be annihilated. Uh Captain Shine had arranged uh, for all the tactical air in the third corps area to be stacked up in our support. We were the number one priority in Saigon uh, for uh, support. And so all of the tactical air, the naval aircraft carriers offshore, uh, the air, the air force aircraft at Tonsonud and several other locations, Benoit, we're all programmed for us. This is going on now, the conversation we're having with HEP about 5.30, quarter to six in the morning, just starting to get a little bit of light under the canopy. Uh, and HEP just outlined the plan. He said when the first uh, aircraft come on station, Major or Captain Shine will bring them in and with their very first load that they're going to drop, uh, second company, which was holding the center of our line, uh, Lieutenant Tang, uh, would rise up and assault into the VC line. This would provide uh, a momentary distraction and relief and allow us to start moving out through the uh, the bomb line. And Shine's plan was quite simple. First plane comes in and drops its load. Uh, second plane comes in and drops it just in front of that, and so on and so forth. And we just follow the crater line out, knowing that there's not going to be anybody alive where the bombs blow up. Uh, our job was to figure out how to get on the other side of the bomb line so we didn't get cleaned out, too. Well, consider this mentality. Tan has got about 30 people left in his company, of what should have been about 120. And, you know, he was going to pick up what he had uh, and assault into the VC line, knowing full well that was a suicide move. But that was what was needed to save the rest of the unit. So that gives you an idea as to the Ranger mentality and quality. Uh, and, you know, I, when it, I was uh, over at, uh, with Shine and Hep when they uh, described this thing to me. And basically, I wasn't given any instructions. I was just, I was just told what was going to happen and, you know, follow you know, the line as best we could. And that's what it was. Uh, beginning at 6.30 in the morning, uh, the helicopter gunships came in, which I adjusted. Uh, and, you know, they were marginally effective. Uh, you know, it was deep jungle. The uh, 
the aviators could really not see us at all. They could just see smoke and, you know, we would give them guidance by sound. Uh, and then about quarter to seven, uh, the first aircraft came in. And I remember it vividly because there was a small opening in the canopy. Uh, and I can, I remember, you know, I can close my eyes today and see the airspace between the wing and the bombs that he had. And these big air brakes come popping out right over my head. And I'm thinking, oh, expletive, you know, it's all over. Uh, and then there was this huge <laughs> double black, boom, boom. And, you know, we were just rained with, uh, wood, leaves, mud, the whole thing. And, you know, we weren't hit though. You know, that was, that really woke me up. You know, I was, I thought I was done for, uh, and you know, the bombs went off and we were rained on this thing. And the fact the L 19 pilot said, Holy shit, there they are. And the bombs had just providentially landed on virtually an entire battalion of VC that were on our flank. And if they had attacked, we'd have been done. They were like within 50 meters of me. Uh, and we had no force capable of holding that thing back. Well, the, the two bombs, which I guess were thousand pounders from the Canberra, uh, just obliterated them. And at that point, it was just a continuous rain of tactical air. Uh, you know, the, the planes had, you know, come in very close dump, boom, and we'd run to the next crater. And, you know, we did that, uh, for the rest of the morning and eventually got back to where we had started, where the helicopters had dropped us originally the, the previous day. Uh, I was carrying a wounded guy. Swires had another wounded guy. Uh, we got into this perimeter uh, that we had created basically with what we had left. Uh, Shine and Hep were talking and Shine looked at me and he said, uh, you know, find out how many people we got. And so I went around the perimeter and I came back and I said, counting us, we got 32 people. That was from the 450 that we started with. Uh, so you get an idea on the intensity. Eventually, uh, troops, you know, filtered back. We ended up with about 175 total of the original 450. One chapter that really does strike me is the one that describes the B-52 arc light mission from Japan. Because on the one hand, that seems very surgical, these guys getting into their planes in a, you know, a very safe environment. On the other hand, the destruction that such a, uh, a capability brings must have been a real game changer for you in that situation. Well, yeah, I actually remember that strike quite well. Um, we were still at that, uh, uh, landing zone that we'd started at. And this was the following night, probably around 1800 in the evening. 
And we didn't know it was going in. We had no idea. And, you know, you never hear these planes because they're flying so high. And all of a sudden, we could just hear crump, 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 crump coming through the jungle. And then the ground literally started to wave like an ocean. Uh, and I was actually knocked to the ground. I could not stand up from the uh, continuous kind of ripple effect uh, in the organic layer of the of the jungle. Uh, you know, later on uh, during the course, I actually we went in and we did what's called BDAs, bomb damage assessment, post strike, uh, and so what the uh, Ranger prisoners described to me was very much in sync with my own experience. Uh, I just, in the book, just describe what the Rangers told me, uh, and I found it very consistent with my own experiences later. Tell me more about Major Yep. He sounds like a very interesting character. Oh, he's extraordinary. I consider him probably the greatest professional teacher, leader, commander of my experience. Uh, he was uh, born in North Vietnam. At that time, it was uh, Indochina. His father was a basically a village bureaucrat for the French. Uh, and as a boy, uh, he was hauled out of his uh, house and forced to watch the Viet Minh shoot his father in the town square uh, because of his association with the French. Uh, when uh, when uh, the French departed in 1954, uh, his aunt took him, his mother had already died, his aunt took him south uh, where he settled into uh, the Saigon area, and as soon as he was eligible, uh, he went to the Dalat Military Academy, their West Point, and was in the uh, French paratroopers. And then when the French departed, he was just segued into the, uh, the Ranger battalions. Uh, extraordinary human being, absolutely hated the VCNVA. His whole life was dedicated to killing them, uh, large part based on his experience with his father. But he was extremely professional and really smart and always thought out of the box. Uh, more importantly, from my view, he never succumbed to the, the greed and venality and the politics uh, that abounded in the Vietnamese army. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, and because of that, they, the senior leadership disliked him because they couldn't trust him. Uh, and you know, they didn't give him any breaks at all professionally, but you know, life is luck and timing and, uh, things happened that propelled him uh, on the first one, uh, he was the executive officer in a ranger battalion when Dong Swai Special Forces Camp was overrun. And uh, the, you, both the U.S. and the Vietnamese were uh, 
anxious, extremely concerned about rescuing the Americans inside the advisor, the uh, special forces camp. The only force available was his ranger battalion. The battalion commander was drunk in Saigon. And so Hep ended up being the ranger battalion commander for this assault. And the, both the Americans and the Vietnamese wanted him to land at a particular location about a mile or so away from the camp and uh, move into it. Hep said, absolutely not. They know we're going to land there. We're going to am- uh, we'll get ambushed. We'll never make it. I insist that we land on the camp. After a lot of conversation, uh, Hep got his way. They landed on the camp. And he extracted personally uh, Lieutenant Williams, who won a Medal of Honor for his actions there. And in the post-operation, it was determined he was absolutely correct that uh, they had an ambush prepared at that location uh, for the Rangers if they were to come in. So at that point, you know, he got uh, he was promoted from lieutenant to captain. Uh because the U.S. insisted, actually. Uh, And then later, uh, the battalion commander was absent uh, again for whatever reason, and Hep ended up as now as a captain commanding the battalion uh, in an ambush that the CAV uh, had fallen into, their second squadron. Uh, and again, Hep said, we're landing right on top of the enemy. Well, this left both the U.S. and the Vietnamese senior leadership aghast, and he insisted they landed right on top of the VC, which was a brilliant idea. Uh, they uh, broke up the attack completely, and they were awarded a U.S. presidential unit citation for it. And at that point, he was basically forced into command of the 52nd Rangers, and I am forever grateful he was. Uh, he was extraordinary in the sense that he was, he always tried to educate you. He knew that, you know, we were going back to the States and we had a career uh, outside of Vietnam, and he wanted to make sure that we actually knew how to do the job. Uh he would sit me down and say, okay, this is what we're doing. And this is what the VC are going to do. And then that's what I'm going to do. And then in the middle of the action itself, you know, bullets going off, bombs sailing, he'd say, okay, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. This is what they're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. You know, in his kind of broken English, uh, bam, bam, bam. Uh, and he was exactly correct. It was the greatest professional education I ever had. Uh, and I used it uh, extensively on my second tour because of all the smarts he had given me uh, about so many different things and how to fight this enemy and how the other side thought uh, and operated. Uh, he later became a Ranger Group Commander and refused to surrender at the fall of Vietnam. Uh, He was finally captured, put into a uh, re-education camp, as they said. Uh, And then he was so difficult and so unwilling to accede to any of the North's uh, 
political correctness, a guard killed him uh, outright. Uh, his wife and two children managed to escape to the U.S., uh, and they've settled in Baltimore. Uh, but I consider him one of my kind of military lodestones and probably the greatest single professional military mentor of my life. And there was one very telling episode um, after the main action where helicopters are going out uh, looking for survivors, and they come across one um, in the middle of nowhere. Yes. Um, we knew that a number of troops had become displaced uh, during the course of the action and scattered and basically just tried to escape uh, the VC. And so for the next week, uh, the 11th Cav began a series of overflights in the whole kind of vast war zone D area where uh, our rangers logically might get to, looking at every open space where, uh, you know, they might be attracted to helicopters coming overhead. About I'm going to say, memory escapes me, but about five days after this action, uh, a flight team from the 11th Cav, and this was a gunship and a slick, an unarmed helicopter. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. We're flying over and the the door gunner spotted this guy standing in an open field down below. And he was just standing there waving at the helicopter. Well, of course, this got everybody's attention. And they wanted to check it and make sure it wasn't an ambush of some kind and what the deal was. So they did a low pass uh, over it just to check him out. And they could see him standing there with something on his shoulder, but he was stock still uh, and just waving at them. Uh, they looked at it and they decided it was probably one of the Rangers. So the helicopter gunship came in very low and did a hover uh, looking directly at the guy. And then the slick came in and landed and the door gunner went out and grabbed the guy and brought him into the helicopter. Well, <laughs> big surprise. Uh, this was one of the Ranger NCOs and he had over his left shoulder, a wounded, uh, friend, buddy of his. And on his right shoulder, he had both of their rifles and their equipment, their full kit. Both of them were barefoot. Uh, and the, the door gunner uh, helped them get on the aircraft with a wounded guy. They picked up and took off. And at that point, the door gunner saw that the sergeant had a sucking chest wound. Uh, and just compressed it. I mean, there was blood and all on the shirt. Uh, the NCO asked for a cigarette, which the door gunner gave him. And as he breathed in, 
the door gunner could see the smoke trickling through his fatigue shirt uh, where the penetration had taken place. Uh, and I always consider that the absolute epitome of what a ranger is all about, uh, U.S. or Vietnamese. It was just, I thought, an extraordinary thing. This guy had been in the jungle, wounded for five days, still had all of their equipment, and still had the presence of mind uh, to manage it with his wounded buddy uh, and rejoin us. Uh, one of the pictures in the book is the is a, the the standard bearer for the rangers at an award ceremony for this action. And that is the NCO uh, that uh, was recovered. My guess is that because these people can't circulate back to the US, you know, they are fighting in their backyard. It is going to be a very visceral fight in a way that it perhaps wasn't for the American armed forces. No quarter. Uh, you know, they had standards of uh, management, if you would. Uh, the VC consistently shot all wounded. Uh, the NVA did not. The NVA would take prisoners. Uh, as a result, if we found a wounded VC, we, the U.S., had to grab him immediately. Uh, to prevent him from being killed. Uh, and we'd make sure he got, you know, was patched up and went on the helicopter. Uh, if you, if they, it was captured by an officer, the guy was safe. If it was captured by a junior enlisted, probably not. Uh, <clears throat> and that worked, that worked the same way on both sides, uh, which made it a very personal war. And understanding that the war was fought around the families consistently so that families were very often the victims uh, of the action itself. And like I said, you know, it made it a very personal thing. Now, you mentioned that you cycle back to the U.S. after your uh, exciting first tour and that you go and instruct at the ROTC. In the year that you've been away, how has public attitudes towards the war changed? And what did that make you feel? Well, it, it had changed dramatically. Uh, when uh, I went to Vietnam, 1967, uh, the, the country was very supportive. Uh, you know, it was support the troops, support the war, uh, etc., uh, when I came back, it was totally the opposite. We had had all of the, you know, draft dodger card burnings, demonstrations in the street. Uh, this was post Tet. This was uh, May of 1968 uh, that I came back. And the hate and invective that people had was directed at the soldiers, uh, which I could never understand. Uh, you know, I'd seen what the soldiers did and how they did it, and it was totally honorable. Uh, it wasn't their fault that the war was going the way it was. That was something at the senior leadership in terms of policy and programs. The troops gave 100% all the time. 
Yet when you got back, you know, you were accused of being a baby killer and they'd spit on you and, uh, you know, unload all of their hate and invective uh, personally uh, on any returning soldier. And I just found that incredibly uh, hateful and, you know, disgusting. So when it comes time for your second tour, how do you feel about going back to Vietnam, given your previous experiences and also given what is going on in the country at the time? Well, you know, I was that at that point, I was a professional uh, officer. Uh, and, you know, I basically wanted to go back to command U.S. troops. You know, my first tour, I was an advisor. I wanted to command U.S. troops in combat, uh, you know, from just a rewards viewpoint. Uh, I wanted to do it, but it was also professionally necessary. So, you know, I went back uh, assigned to the 101st uh, in what was i up in the north. Uh, very different country than where I was in three corps in the South. Uh, and the nature of the war and the nature of the leadership on the U.S. side had changed dramatically. Uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't associated with Vietnamese troops other than peripherally. Uh, the U.S., I would, obviously I was in a U.S. unit. Uh, and we were still sort of fighting the war, but it was very clear uh, it was now a very risk-adverse, uh, hunker down, don't embarrass anybody, we'll just get by, you know, for our tour and move on. A very, very different environment. I was still fired up by Hep and his experience. I wanted to go out and kill VC and NVA. Uh, and you know, this, my senior leadership was a little leery about that. And I guess that is why when on your second tour, there is operation Lam song 719, the Vietnam Vietnamization of the war. And it was Vietnam that was invading, uh, Laos and, and, and not the, not the U S that was the idea, the Overarching strategy was that the South Vietnamese could exhibit uh, how competent they had become and they could render major damage to the North and sustain themselves, uh, which provided a fig leaf for further U.S. withdrawals. Uh, the problem was that the North Vietnamese were much more highly reactive than the South had the capability to manage. Uh, no U.S. forces were allowed to be in Laos. The whole idea of the plan was to attack uh, to a place called Chipone, which was about 30 miles inland uh, from the border. And this was the heart of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the big supply network that they had. The idea was the South Vietnamese would get into Chipone, capture all this stuff, blow it up, and make life very difficult for the North, and then, you know, pull back. Well, the problem was that the North 
was much more uh, organized for response than we had anticipated. Uh, they immediately sent in three full divisions of forces with tanks and with armor, uh, with armor and artillery, excuse me. Uh, my company was assigned to secure a uh, pickup zone at a place called uh, Laobao, PZ-1, which was on the exact edge of the border overlooking Laos and along the principal conduit from Quezon into Chipone, Highway 5. Uh, independent company operation, just secure it. Nobody expected any kind of ground issue. Uh, we were there more for window dressing and security than anything else. Well, within the second day, we started getting 122 artillery uh, at us. And we could actually see the gun shooting at us by little winks on the, the hills just inland, about five miles. And a 122 is a gun, which means it was like the German 88 in World War II, very fast. It's not a howitzer. It's crack bang. You have no time between when you get when you get the first impression and when the round goes off. Uh, so we very quickly became troglodytes uh, underground. Uh, it was very emotional for me because the primary assault force were were Rangers, uh, and I was in the talk, the operations center, during all of this uh, incursion and then the subsequent uh, retreats. And the North had just brought in a tremendous amount of uh, AAA because they knew that the only support the Vietnamese had, the, the Rangers and the Airborne had, were U.S. helicopters. Well, if the helicopters can't fly, they got no support, which is exactly what happened. Uh, within a very short period of time, uh, helicopters below 5,000 feet were basically blown out of the sky. Uh, and Laobao, where I was, just became this vast boneyard uh, of U.S. helicopters. Uh, you know, and we saw the Rangers coming back in bits and drabs off of a bird that might you know, luckily get in and guys hanging on the skids and then not hanging on the skids, you know, so it was a very kind of difficult emotional point for me. When you cycle out of Vietnam for the last time, what are your feelings of your overall experience in the country? Two, two quite different experiences, but are you glad to leave or do you feel that you still have uh, work to be done? No, it's very, uh, I had very conflictive feelings. Uh, the first is I was definitely glad I had the experience, uh, you know, as a professional infantry officer, you know, I had been in combat, I had done reasonably well, uh, and I saw how stuff worked. Uh, I developed a sense of call it military priorities, uh, with the troops, you know, what's important, what's not important, uh, that sort of thing. I was extremely disappointed with our senior leadership. Uh, the army was in disarray. It had no discipline. 
the senior officers were afraid to exercise, call it, you know, basic order and discipline. Uh, you know, we had the race issues. We had major drug problems. You know, that was very, very bothersome to me. Uh, but I never regretted my service over there. And I really loved the Vietnamese. Uh, you know, I, I really got to admire them considering what they had to deal with uh, for their entire lifespan, if you would. Uh, you know, just as an aside, you know, when I went back to Vietnam in uh, 2012 uh, with my neighbor who I grew up with, it was also in Vietnam. Uh, in the South, it was like we won the war. You know, people were op optimistic. They had a great attitude. They were entrepreneurial. They couldn't thank us enough for having been in Vietnam and what we meant to them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It was just, it was kind of a huge shock. I went into this communist country, uh, you know, and thought I was in some microcosm of the U.S., uh, because you would never thought we had lost the war, you know, with the people, you know, that would come up just voluntarily and say, oh, you Waukee, you Americans said, yes, you know, Vietnam uh, advice. Uh, and they'd, you know, pat me on the head or they'd shake my hand or they'd give me one of their, you know, uh, thank you nods. So it was, uh, that, that's a long answer to your question, but the basic answer is I was very satisfied with my service. I was very dissatisfied with my leadership. And back at home, how did you adjust personally and professionally to life back in the, in the United States? Well, it was difficult. Um, the Army was struggling. Uh, didn't know what to do or how to do it. Uh <clears throat> You know, by this time, uh, I had had a second child, so we, you know, we had to deal with that. Uh, I was fortunate in that I came back with a 173rd Airborne, was on jump status. So we had, you know, high quality people, both officers and NCOs. Uh, the rest of the organization outside was not that way. Uh and then uh, Abrams at that point, 1974, uh, established the first Ranger Battalion, the modern day Rangers. Uh, and one of the battalion commanders, Casey Lure, who was in the 101st with me, was nominated to be the battalion commander uh, of 175. And uh, I joined him as one of his company commanders at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, later Fort Stewart. And we had the pick of everybody. It was basically the NCOs that wanted to be in the Army and wanted to resurrect the standards and professionalism that we had. And then we had the pick of whatever soldiers we could get that wanted to do it. So I was sort of in a bubble compared to the rest of the army. And I'm very glad I was, I don't know how I would have reacted if I had been in a unit, uh, of lax standards and no interest in changing them. Uh, it was a much greater challenge for a lot of officers and NCOs 
that were in these units then for me. I consider myself very fortunate. And how long do you think that the legacy of the Vietnam War affected the U.S. military and particularly the U.S. Army? Well, I, I think it's still there uh, in various bits and pieces. Uh, you know, the, the first is, which we've apparently squandered, is you don't go to war unless you're prepared to win or you have an exit strategy neither of which existed in Vietnam. You know, Vietnam was the first, call it disgrace, of the U.S. military, uh, something we've had to l deal with ever, ever since. Um, it taught us, though, the basics of how to fight post-Korea uh, post World War II, which was very conventional. Uh, a lot of the tactics and techniques that we learned in Vietnam, the helicopter coordination, uh, combined arms, et cetera, have held us in good stead up to this point. Uh, Vietnam is ancient history. People kind of understand the name. They don't really understand what it means. Uh, you know, sort of like everything else, it'll probably be lost in time but it'll have several threads that will continue, even if they're not identifiable to that point. Uh, you know, in my own case, uh, the whole time I was in the service, uh, I vowed I was not going to be like my battalion and brigade commander in Vietnam. Uh, and, you know, you take on tough tasks, you tell them it's tough, you hold them to standards and, you know, you insist that they achieve those standards or they move on. Uh, and, you know, I think that principle plus the growth of the Ranger Regiment and more importantly, the Special Operations Forces has, you know, that was all been underwritten by what we did in Vietnam. Now, we have, as I mentioned before, uh, four copies of your book to give away. Thank you very much. And um, more details on that will be in the show notes uh, about how you can win a copy. But uh, on behalf of Cold War Conversations, Keith, I have to say thank you very much indeed uh, for the time you spent with us today. I'm very glad to do it. Uh, Vietnam has a lot of things I think are of value today. Uh, and I'm just sort of the messenger of some of them. If anybody gets something out of the book uh, that is positive, I'll consider that a good day on my part. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo level Patreons, who are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, and Jeffrey Jones, who are supporting us at thirty US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com/slash/donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com/donate for more information.